your Bibles, if you would please, to Deuteronomy chapter 22. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 22. I miss the beach. Do you miss the beach? Do you wish you were at the beach? I'll drive. The cool ones get right. There's some hands up. I miss the beach. Anyway, as you get to Deuteronomy 22, let me uh, call to your attention an illustration. Um, Imagine if for a moment I entered my kitchen and saw leaves, right? Leaves sitting on the counter uh, next to a bunch of food. Now, I have four children, and uh, Lord only knows what might end up in the kitchen, which is right near the back door, which is right near the back yard, which is right near mud and worms and leaves and rocks and stones and sticks and all that other stuff. And I come into the kitchen, and I see these leaves sitting there, dirty leaves. And I'm thinking, what are these leaves? Uh, Actually, I'm probably saying truthfully. What are these leaves doing here? And I pick up the leaves and I walk towards the back door and I open it up and I'm about to throw them out and Sarah goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Those are bay leaves. Bay leaves. I'm making whatever she makes with bay leaves. I'm making soup. I'm making stew. I'm making something. I Give me those. I need those. To which I would humbly say, oh, I asked, what the heck are these? The better question to have asked would have been, what's for dinner? Why do I bring this up? I think this is how people tend to approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and particularly issues surrounding women. Uh, they'll find a verse in the Bible. They'll pick it up and say, oh, what's this doing in here? What the, ah, that's disgusting. That's wrong. That's anti-woman. How could a loving God? And just look at this one little verse, and God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're looking at leaves that make no sense at first glance and are, quite frankly, very hard to swallow. But the problem is they don't understand the meal. They're focused on one ingredient, one aspect, one issue, one verse or set of verses, and they're ready to walk towards the back door and chuck them in the garbage. But if you rightly understand the word of God, not the verse of God, the word of God, in its context, both culturally and scripturally, how much of it? All of it. I believe you'll come to see that not only are those hard to swallow leaves good, they're actually very, very good. But you won't see that unless you're interested in the whole meal. Don't ask what's with the leaves, but rather ask what's for dinner. And so today we look at Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now, we're not bound to the Mosaic law. Uh, We live under grace. We sure appreciate it, and we apply it as the wisdom of God. And when God established a society for his people, this is what was on his mind and heart. And so we do well to take those things into consideration today. Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, beginning in verse 22. This is what the word of God says. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city And you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. And here ends the reading of God's holy word. Father in heaven, we come before you asking you to bless the preaching and the reading and the hearing of your word as only you can. Lord, you've given us eyesight. We need insight. We need help. And we trust that you will give it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with verse 22. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So that's pretty straightforward. That adultery is prohibited in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and is therefore punishable by death. But what does God require for the death penalty to be enacted in Old Testament Judaism? Well, flip back five chapters. Keep your finger. We're coming back to Deuteronomy 22. But flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And follow along as I read beginning in verse 2. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones." On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, I want to call to your attention a few what I consider to be key phrases. First of all, look at verse 2. If there is found among you. That's a Hebrew. Found among you is a Hebrew term, Hebrew word matzah, and literally means to discover, to find. It's like, aha, there's an aha moment. Somebody has found among them this person or these people who are sinning. So if you were to discover, verse 2, but verse 4 actually broadens it. It's not only if you were to discover, because verse 4 says, and it is told you and you hear of it. So either you discover it, it's aha, or you hear of it. It's like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So there's more than one way for you to become aware of the sin in the camp. You either discover it or you hear of it, and quite frankly, you can't unring a bell. Then later on in verse 4, it says, Then you shall inquire diligently. Inquire diligently. That's a Hebrew term, dahrash, which literally means to seek with care. And so an investigation would be done of some sort. You would inquire diligently. And if you found this to be true, verse 5 says, You would stone them. But wait a minute. There's also verse 6. Verse 6 says, All of this is assuming you have two or three witnesses, two or three people who would be willing to testify to this fact. And it's restated at the end of verse 6. It's like God really wants us to get this. Two or three witnesses and P.S. one is less than two or three. That's what it says. Two or three witnesses, oh, and one is not enough. 
So this is serious. Death comes by the evidence of two or three witnesses after this process. Uh, God doesn't want people just being stoned for whatever, just willy-nilly. So again, verse 2, it has to be discovered or found out. Verse 4, you have to hear of it. You have to conduct a careful investigation. And after that, you would stone such a person. But even then, only if two or three witnesses are willing to testify it. And P.S. 1 is less than 2 or 3. So with that in mind, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22. Because that's the cultural and scriptural context we would find this to fall under when someone says, stone that person to death, condemn that person, punish them for their sin, purge the evil from Israel. So again, verse 22 says, if a man is, there it is again, found, the same Hebrew word, matzach, if a man is discovered, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of, the, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. In verse 23, it changes a bit, just a bit. Verse 23 says this, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones, The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. Once again, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So verse 23, if there is a betrothed virgin, so this is an engaged single woman, but engagement was way more serious in Old Testament times than it is now. Perhaps you'll recall that Joseph, when finding out that Mary was with child, he was seeking to issue her what? a divorce quietly, even though he wasn't married to her. That's because that's what would have been required to break off an engagement in Old Testament times. So engagement was very serious. You'll notice in verse 23 that this woman is referred to as a betrothed virgin, but at the end of verse 24, the man is said to have violated his neighbor's what? Wife. That's the same lady. So that's who we're talking about here. What does that tell us? That tells us that This is technically another case of sex outside of the confines of marriage. uh, And that this is fornication for him. It might be adultery for him. We don't know if he's married or not. Uh, It's fornication for him, but it is most definitely adulterous for her. Basically, it's the same thing that is explained to us in verse 22. Why the repeat? Well, it's not exactly the same. And let's look at it just a little more closely. Look at verse 24. Look at the wording, particularly in the punishment. The man is guilty for what he did, the sexual act. He is punished for what he did in having sex with a woman that was not his wife and was someone else's wife. But here's my question. Why doesn't God's word primarily call to our attention the woman's role in this act? There's no mention of the fact that she may have violated her neighbor's husband. Or that she violated a covenant relationship with her soon-to-be husband. Technically speaking, she could have been considered adulterous. And that is not primarily called to our attention. There seems to be some consideration given to the fact that she very well may have not been complicit in the act. That she very well may have been victimized by this man. And so the question isn't what she did in having sex with him, but what she did not do. The word of God says she is stoned because she did not cry out 
for help. And it was assumed that if she did cry for help, she would have received the help of those within earshot of the city. Why does God's word call our attention to the cry or the lack of cry? And that leads us to our first point today. I believe the cry is essential. Christians need to know and should know that hope and help for both the offender and the abused starts with a cry. God wants victims of abuse to cry out. God wants victims of abuse to cry out. He wants it so much that he's willing to to punish someone in the Old Testament for not crying out. You say, yeah, but... That's not really for not crying out. She's really being, I mean, she's really being punished for sexual immorality, her adulterous behavior. And I don't think you are incorrect totally. I think you are reading between the lines, and I think you're reading between the lines rightly. But I will remind you that that point was made in verse 22. There's a different point being made here. What the text says, the text says, read it in your own Bibles, is that she is to be stoned because she did not, what, cry. For help, though she was in the city, implying someone would have heard her and come to her aid. What's implied is that if she had cried for help, she wouldn't have been stoned, but he still would have. And so in laying it out this way, we see God's punishment for sexual immorality taking place between two consensual people, two people sinning willfully. We see that in verse 22. And God's desire for a person, in this case, verse 23 and 24, a woman to cry out. Crying is key. Christians should know that hope and help for both the offender and the abused starts with a cry. And here's why. Here's three reasons, just three reasons, why God wants victims to cry out. Granted, there's probably more than three reasons. I'm going to give you three of them today. And they're in your outline. Number one, crying out allows victims the opportunity to not live as desolate people. I'm going to tell you a story that you can follow along with if you want in 2 Samuel chapter 13, or you can just listen to me paraphrase it. In 2 Samuel 13, Amnon is frustrated He is frustrated because he's attracted to his half-sister Tamar, but he can't have her because she's family. He tells this to his cousin cousin Jonadab, who comes up with a plan and says, here's what you should do. What you should do is you should pretend you're sick, right? Lie down, okay? And then uh, we'll send Tamar, and I'll get Tamar to come in, and she'll make food for you. And then when you guys are alone, you can... You know what I'm saying? I think you know what I'm saying. You guys can take it from there. And so that happens. And Tamar makes the food. And Amnon says, come feed it to me in my bedroom. And Amnon says, you know what? Let's send everybody out from my bedroom. And Tamar follows. And when they're alone, Amnon rapes Tamar. And afterward, in 2 Samuel 13 and verse 19, we read these words. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother, Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you now? 
Hold your peace, my sister. After all, he is your brother. Do not, do not take this to heart. And then we read these words. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. A desolate woman. The Hebrew word for desolate is shalmeim, which means deflowered, deserted, appalled, stunned. That same Hebrew word used elsewhere in your Bible is translated as astonished, wasted, destroyed. And so Tamar lived in her brother's house, a desolate woman, a deflowered woman, an appalled woman, an astonished, a wasted, a destroyed woman. Now, sin is sin. It's all willful rebellion against God. But God's word seems to put, I would argue, the effects of sexual sin in a bit of a different category than he does other sins. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 says, Every other sin a person commits is what? outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And in cases of sexual abuse, an offender commits sins against his or her own body and the body of another. And even though Tamar did no wrong, because she was silenced, because she was not heard and not helped, she lived a desolate life, appalled, stunned, wasted, and destroyed. Listen to me. Nothing, nothing good comes from a victim of abuse staying silent. Nothing good comes from the person. Nothing good comes from the community. Nothing good comes for the offender. Nothing good comes from the church. Nothing good comes from a victim of abuse staying silent. And if you don't want to hear victims make their plight known, your attitude towards sexual assault is different than God's. If Tamar had cried as Deuteronomy 22 instructs, most likely she was going to do that. Most likely Absalom kind of catches her at the pass because that's the practice, right? This is what happens. She was probably going to do that. Absalom's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me, hey, 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 come here, let's talk. If Tamar had cried out, as Deuteronomy 22 instructs, he'd be brought to justice, and she'd be exonerated, and so they would purge the evil from their midst. In Deuteronomy 22, God so badly wants to purge evil from the midst of his people, he's saying, even if a sin of this nature is committed in a way that can't be found out, even if it's in the bedroom of a predator prince, I still want it found out, so that woman needs to cry. Crying out, allows the victim to be loved, to be helped, to receive compassion, to have wounds bound up and for scars to heal even the wounds and scars that we cannot see. 
Crying out allows the victim to walk into the light, not as one who confesses their own sin, but as one who has been sinned against and who can say, this happened to me and can be ministered to instead of tempted to live a desolate life. God is not a God of silence. He speaks. And he desires that his people do the same. Three reasons God wants victims to cry out. Number one, crying out allows victims the opportunity to not live as desolate people. Number two, crying out protects other potential victims. Spoiler alert, Absalom eventually kills Amnon, but that's two years later. I don't know what Amnon did during those two years. Maybe he struck again. We don't have every detail of every person's life in the Bible, not at all. It's very rare that an abuser strikes only once. Most times it's multiple times with the same victim or multiple victims or multiple times with multiple victims. Two years is a long time. But two years passes and Absalom has Amnon killed. When someone cries out and says, this has happened to me, it's an opportunity to protect other would-be victims. Jim Neuheiser is an author and a biblical counselor who has written of his experience with a trusted friend and partner in ministry. And although this friend of his was a respected and revered man by churches and leaders for over 20 years, he used his position of influence and power and the trust that the Lord gave him to take advantage of women for virtually his entire adult life. And one person cried out about the sexual sin that was committed against her and said, hey, this happened to me. And as a result, someone else did. And someone else said, yeah, me too. He did that to me too. Followed by another and another and another and another and another. And as they came forward, each one of them wept. Because what did they think? They thought they were the only victim. And they realized that if they had sooner cried out, they could have prevented future assaults from happening. You see, a victim coming forward to say this happened to me, is actually one of the most selfless, life-giving things a person can do. It takes tremendous, unfathomable courage to do that, and tremendous trust in the Lord, and trust in the person to whom they are speaking. And the act in and of itself is not inherently selfish, but rather selfless. Why? Because abuse thrives in silence and darkness. Abuse spreads in silence and darkness. Abuse escalates in silence and darkness. Like a cancer, it spreads and infects and and defects and affects more and more people in silence and darkness. And that's why people need to be taught to cry out. 
Then the person who had been sinned against is out of the darkness of what only she knew and standing in the light. And as a result, other victims are encouraged to do the same. They no longer think they're the only ones and they too come forward. And as a result, the offender can be stopped. Crying out is key. Reason number three why God wants people to cry out. Crying out is the kindest thing that somebody can do, watch this, to their offender. The kindest thing somebody can do to their offender. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read of King David and Bathsheba. David sees Bathsheba bathing. She is a beautiful woman. He wants her. And because he's the king, he's able to summon her. So he sends messengers for her, and they have sex, while her husband Uriah is in battle, which, by the way, is where David should be. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David, because he's the king, sends for Uriah. Uriah comes off the battlefield, and David, loving king that he is, encourages Uriah to go home and enjoy his wife, enjoy the downtime. In other words, go have sex with her. This way, when people learn that she's pregnant, they'll think it's because of you. Well, Uriah doesn't do that. He can't bring himself to do that while his comrades are in battle. So David tries something else. David gets him drunk and thinks now he'll surely sleep with his wife. They'll surely have sex. But Uriah sleeps on the couch instead of his wife. And so David's 0 for 2. So David then, because he's the king, sends Uriah back into battle and arranges it so that he gets killed, which does happen. And Bathsheba goes into mourning, and David comes to her aid, hero king that he is, and takes the poor army widow in to be his wife. And by the time she starts to show, it will be okay because she had a baby with her new husband, King David. Second Samuel chapter 11 ends with these words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Which thing? No, but all the things that David had done pleased, displeased the Lord. Second Samuel 12, 1, the very next verse starts out with these words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Bathsheba never cries out, not that we know from the word of God. But Nathan does. And Nathan confronts David. And that's what God uses in David's life to call him to repentance. And because Nathan came forward and Nathan told David, you are the man. It is you. We have words in our Bible of Nathan's repentance like Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wipe me from all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How did that come about? Someone cried. 
What did God use in David's life? You say, well, God moved on his heart. Yeah, I know. God's sovereign over the end and the means. What are the means that God used in David's life? Someone else coming forward with a loving, truth-filled, pointing finger to say, you are the man. You have done this. Crying out is the kindest thing you can do to the offender. God does amazing things in people's lives. Amazing. Uh, Sexual sin is serious, and it is grave, and it is far-reaching, and it is also not the unpardonable sin. Uh, Christian culture, we tend to come up with new unpardonable sins every now and again, don't we? And if it's not uh, card playing, it's drinking. And if it's not drinking, it's homosexuality. And if it's not homosexuality, it's transgenderism. And it's not transgenderism, it's sexual abuse. All of these sins that uh, are not the unpardonable sin, but they're so, uh, they so fly in the face of what we believe and what we know the Bible to say. We're so enraged by it, we tend to put them in this unreachable category. We know God can save that, yeah, but come on now. Right, like we won't say that to him, which is good because we want him to hear. Right, so we just think, yeah, I know God can save, but come on now. But the fact of the matter is, there is one unpardonable sin, and it's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and it is, in essence, unbelief. The thief on the cross was saved by the skin of his by the skin of his teeth because he did one thing: he believed. And so the unpardonable sin is not some magic phrase, something you might say, ooh, be careful, don't say Beetlejuice in front of the mirror. It's, not, it's, it's none of that. There's no like magical thing that could happen and ah, something might happen. It's unbelief. And so sexual abuse in and of itself is not the unpardonable sin. God's grace reaches people who have done all sorts of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. Grace reaches the offender and the offended. God does amazing things in people's lives. And any time I have seen, I have seen God do an amazing thing in a person's life. When someone was using some sort of power or some sort of position to get what they want or abusing the trust someone had placed in them in order to get what they want, in every instance, the grace of God pierced through the darkness with the light of Christ because someone cried out or because they were caught. It's very, very rare for an offender to come forward in and of himself or in and of herself and say, I'm an offender, I've been doing this, I need help. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm telling you, it's very, very rare. Their hearts have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They think that they'll stop on their own. I ought not do this. And maybe they do for a little. But then if they strike again, another victim bites the dust. Or that same victim is victimized yet again. And condemnation comes washing back over them because they don't have any hope. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle of sin, of condemnation, of selfishness, of hopelessness, of bondage and idolatry. And so a victim coming forward and crying out, or or someone like Nathan coming forward and crying out to show someone their sin, or to cry out on behalf of a victim is actually the most merciful thing someone can do. Why? 
because it sheds light on someone who would otherwise remain in the dark and gives them a chance to stop, a chance to face the consequences, a chance to surrender, and a chance to get the help that they so desperately need but would likely not find it on their own. You will be on the wrong side of history and the wrong side of the Bible if you are numbered among those who in any way, shape, or form are complicit in telling a victim to keep quiet. Don't be an Absalom. How might we be Absalom even unwittingly? Because I would never do that. Let me tell you something. Blankets are really cuddly. So long as you do not crumple them up into a ball and put them on someone's face with force. Because then that smothers someone. Blanket statements smother people. When we take a grain of truth, but probably in reality a grain of personal experience or opinion, and make it a widely held belief about a person or a group of people, the comfort that could come with truth is spread out over a blanket statement and then smothered up and effectively smothers people. Let me see if I can give you some examples surrounding the topic of abuse. You know what? The church... The church has failed people. Uh, The church doesn't care about the victims. The church has failed women. The church is anti-women. They just hate victims. They don't want to hear. The church covers for their own. I have a beautiful wife. Stunning, in fact. Not long ago, she found two pimples on her pretty face, right on her chin, which she's thrilled that I'm telling you about. And they were driving her crazy, and they hurt. You know what it's like. Now, if you were to perhaps come up to me, and we're friends, and you would say, what's with the pimples on Sarah? I might even laugh back and be like, I know, my teenage bride. Like, I'll quit back. But if you're like, no, but seriously, bro, like, what the heck? She's losing it, man. She's giving up. She's letting it all go to pot. She's not even trying anymore. She's super ugly. I would probably look back at you at some point, my smile fading from my face and say, hey, that's my wife. The church is the bride of Christ. And she has pimples. However, I cringe when I hear people's blanket statements about the church. The church, all of Christendom for 2,000 plus years, saying this is where the church is wrong, or this is where the church fails, or this is where the church always misses it, or anything like that, because I can picture in my mind's eye Jesus Christ perhaps saying, hey, that's my wife. And blanket statements smother people. And when we see a pimple, we call it what it is, and we pop that thing, and we deal with it swiftly and soundly with the word of God. But let's not smother people with blanket statements whereby a victim who needs help would not go to the church because she's heard that she's falling apart and that she's not for her. That's simply not true. 
Blanket statement number two. All these alleged victims, I'll tell you what, they're just looking for attention. They're on a witch hunt. It's all a scam. All these people come to, oh, all of a sudden, everyone's a victim of abuse, right? All of a sudden, look at this. I can't believe it. It's all, it's all a sham. It's all a scam. It's all put up for someone so that they can take down other people. Just stop. Your whisper is a shout to those who trust you the most. And the thought, the thought of my friends, the thought of people in my community group, the thought of my kids, the thought of my daughter, not disclosing abuse to me because she overheard me saying some smothering blanket statement that all those people are just something. And she doesn't want to be put in that category by her daddy. Makes me think it perhaps would be better for me to have a millstone tied around my neck and to be cast into the sea. Blanket statements smother people. We use them to our peril. Which brings us to our second point. One point all this time. Our second point. Christians should foster an environment where cries are welcomed, believed, and answered. Back to Deuteronomy 22, beginning in verse 25. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a woman had sex with a man in the city, she's thought to have been complicit in the act if she didn't cry out. God wants her to cry out. She is stoned for not having cried out. If she had cried out, she would not have been stoned. People would have heard, they would have believed, and she would have been exonerated. Verse 25 presents a different scenario. Instead of being in the city, we are aware, in the open country. She's betrothed, once again, which means that she's engaged. She's likely there alone. In fact, it, we're told that she's out there alone. Married couples spend most of their time together. She wasn't married. People didn't commute to work. She's taken, but not married and presumed to be alone. Verse 25 says, if a man, what, seizes her. That Hebrew word means uh, to prevail over one with strength, to become Stronger, if a, that the man seizes her. So he grabs her and forces her and rapes her. In this situation, who gets punished? Verse 25 says, then only the man who lay with her shall die. Verse 26 tells us why. Because she has what? Committed no offense, punishable by death. And this seems reasonable and right and good. I don't think any of us would disagree with this. She committed no offense that would be punishable by death. She is the victim of a rape, and therefore the rapist and the rapist alone receives the punishment. Here's my question. How do you know any of it happened? 
Verse 25 says, but if the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her. How do you know she was seized? Because she said so. How do you know that she cried out? It's because she said so. How do you know that this at all took place? Where's the witness? How do we know any of this happened? How can she prove it? And apparently we know because she said so. Apparently, even though there's no witness, she was believed. Apparently, even though she couldn't prove it, her word and her description of what happened was enough. And so what happened to Deuteronomy 17? It needs to be discovered. It needs to be heard of. It needs a careful investigation. Two or three witnesses. Well, in Deuteronomy 22, God says her testimony is Enough. Her word is enough. Biblical law was absolutely revolutionary for women. And despite what the haters going to hate, bro, despite what the haters say, the Bible, which people claim is against women and chauvinistic, is actually more sensitive to women and more pro-women than any pro-woman activist movement or modern law. That's our God. And so there's a hashtag that trends now on social media. Believe her. That's not a construct of our day and age. It's as old as the book of Deuteronomy. She's the only one who can give testimony to what took place. It was just her and him. There's two people who can come forward about what happened in the open country. And the people of God believed her. How do we know that? Because he is to be stoned. So you say, so what does that mean? Are we supposed to stone people based on the testimony of one witness? No. You're not in the stoning business. This isn't a lecture on jurisprudence. Uh, Precious few of us sit in a court of law on a regular basis. But do you know where you sit every day? Do you know where you sit every minute of every hour of every day? Even right now, the courts of personal and public opinion. And in a church, in a family... In a community group, in a social circle, in a ladies' Bible study, at a guy's night, in a girl's night, that court has more sway than any branch of government. It's that court that's going to stifle the victim or encourage her to speak. It's that court that's going to encourage surrender from the offender or chase him back into the darkness. It's that court that tweets. It's that court that posts. It's that court that may not make headlines and it may seem to whisper, but its whisper is a shout to those closest to us. First Corinthians 13.7 reminds us that Christian love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and never, ever fails. And God doesn't want people to be used and left out with the trash. God doesn't want people to be abused and left to live a desolate life as Tamar did. And in Deuteronomy 22, if the woman's testimony was the only testimony that could be found, she was believed. 
Now, what does that look like for us? We don't live in the theocracy that the people of Israel did. Which is kind of a blessing in a sense because we're not making life or death decisions based on our belief of someone's testimony. In our land, we have a court of law that does that and the citizenry that participate in that institution are responsible for doing that. Here in our church, in our everyday life, you know what believing her means? What believing her means is that we uncross our arms, we open our eyes, we open our mouth, and we express compassion and concern immediately. We, we, we uncross our arms, we open our eyes, we widen them, we open our mouth, we, we even gasp a little, and we express compassion and concern immediately. Oh my, oh my goodness, I cannot, be- oh my, that's that's a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, mine. How can we help? How can we provide comfort? How can we connect you with the help that you need? How can we help you to be safe? How can we help? Nobody has to earn your compassion. Nobody has to earn your concern. You give it freely because it's been given freely to you by our Savior. No one is asking this young woman why she was in the country alone. No one is asking this young woman what she was wearing while she was in the country. Nowhere does God say subject her to a battery of questions to make sure that she didn't bring it on herself. Nowhere are people saying, him? Not him. You you probably, I'm sure it seemed that way, you probably misunderstood it. Go to bed, sleep it off, see if you feel this way in the morning. They believed her. Your first response is to believe her and to show her compassion. Believe her and show her comfort. Believe her and connect her with truth. Believe her and make sure she knows she's loved and Valued. Believe her and have the long game in mind, knowing that you'll have an opportunity to one day walk with her in a discipleship relationship for for the long haul and help her understand how to walk in Christ. But understand that if you don't meet her with compassion and concern from day one, that long game will likely not be played. Believing her means you immediately respond with compassion and concern. And with conviction rates in the 90 plus percent for situations that actually go to trial, the odds are in your favor.
Believing her means you immediately respond with gratefulness for what she's told you, and you can do so sincerely. She's created an opportunity for you to minister to her. She's created an opportunity for the offender to be stopped because he likely won't on his own. She's created an opportunity for others to be protected. She's moved from darkness and silence into the light, and we are truly grateful that, that, that she would stand in the light, which in turn gives the offender the opportunity to stand in the light and allows grace and mercy to move around in a place where it never would have been in silent darkness. But if she thinks you won't believe, she'll be quiet. If she thinks she'll be lumped in with a group of people you've chosen to cover with a blanket statement, she'll be smothered and therefore she'll be quiet and desolate and he'll probably move on to someone else and nobody wins and that's not God's way and that's why the cry is key. And that's why God's word wants us, if we are victims, to cry out. And that's why God creates for himself a society in which that woman would have known going into it, I'm going to be believed, I'm going to be helped. The family of God has got my back. Some closing statements. God's word employs the use of many metaphors. In Matthew 25, he refers to those who are saved, believers, Christians, as sheep. He refers to the lost, the unbelieving, the non-Christians as goats. And that Jesus, upon his return, will separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 and verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Friends, if you are a sheep, we will preach the gospel to you, reminding you of who you are in Christ, love you, and feed you. We will feed the sheep. If you are a goat, we will preach the gospel to you, call you to faith and repentance in Christ, and love you as God would have us, and are really glad that you are here. If you are a wolf, You listen to me. If you are a wolf, if you are here to prey upon the sheep and goats among us, if you are here to prey upon the vulnerable among us, we will preach the gospel to you and call you to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as we hand you over to the police. We have every bit of faith and confidence in the sovereign saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and pray that he will reach you and save you all the way in your cell. Because Jesus Christ saves and loves sinners. And the elders 
of this church seeking to be like the good shepherd will shepherd the flock of God that is among us and will not stand by idly and let you scatter this flock. Finally, and lastly, Christians know the freedom that comes with standing in the light. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I really miss the beach right now. New York's ocean beaches are south-facing. All of them run along the southern shore of what is geographically known as Long Island. Coney Island, the Rockaways, Long Beach, Lido Beach, Jones Beach, Robert Moses, Fire Island, all the way out to the Hamptons. Long stretches of sand that face south. And so growing up, went to the beach all the time. All the time. But I never saw the sun rise or set over the ocean. Why? Because the beaches are facing south. So I'm used to facing the ocean and the sun rising in the east to my left and setting in the west to my right. And if you've ever been to the beach or a beach like that, or you know that in a, in a sunset... That's the time when you can look down the beach and all of a sudden this not-so-tall guy is really, really big because that shadow reaches all the way down there and as a kid you're running and you see your shadow and you're making more shadows and then I'm now older and I have kids and so my kids are running over there and they're trying to step on my head and I'm ducking and moving so they can't do that. The Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 19 says, People love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. One of the things that people fear the most about standing in the light is the fact that doing so will cast a long shadow. 
And that shadow reminds them of things they don't want to remember. Things that have been done to them or things they themselves have done. And so standing in the light is, is scary because by coming into the light, there's going to be a long shadow that is cast. And people are deceived, believing it's safer in the darkness. Because if I stay in the darkness, there's one thing I know I don't have, and that's what? A shadow. Because there's no shadow created without the light. And so by staying in the darkness, I can be safe. By staying in the darkness, I don't have to face that shadow. Walking into the light, it might sound good, but oh, standing in that light creates a long, long shadow. And you look down the beach and you see that shadow going as far as the eye can see. And the sky behind it is dark. And it's just a little chilly, just a little chilly because there's that time of the day where it actually matters which way you're facing. It's a little chilly on your face. And the waves are crashing and the sea is big and the sky is dark. And that shadow is scary. But if you turn around, if you turn around, it's completely different. You see the most beautiful sight that that your eyes have ever seen. You see colors that are radiant. You see and feel the warmth of the light. And the one thing you can't see if you're facing the light is the shadow. And you know why? Because God's light is brighter than the darkness and the darkness will not overcome. And because when you're facing that light, it is brighter and it is warmer. And now all of a sudden that scary sea is now the sea into which God has cast all of your sins, all of your experiences, all of what's happened to you into the depths of the sea. And there's grace and there's help and there's healing and there's wholeness that can be found in the light. And only in the light and never in The darkness, because in the light is where we belong. And in the light is where no sin thrives and no sin spreads. Because at the end of the day, the only reason there's a long shadow is because that light is infinitely brighter, infinitely warmer, and infinitely bigger than any sin. Consider if God is calling you to stand in the light and say, this has happened to me. Or to say, I'm a sinner and I need help. I need Jesus and I want to stop. I'm going to ask you to remain in your seats, listen and allow this ministry of music that you're about to hear minister to your heart and mind as we are reminded that Jesus, the light of the world, 
is brighter and warmer and bigger than our sin. You're 
do. Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 46, where Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Let's go from this place being the people of light that he's called us to be to the glory of his great name. Have a blessed day.